going to start by reading something from Isaiah. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. As we continue this sermon series called Not Alone, we're in the topic of grief this week. And grief, as we've talked about already this morning, is heavy. And, and specifically, what we want to talk about and wrestle with together is, are the questions, am I alone? And will the pain ever stop. And God, through his word and in the scripture, testifies to his view of this, as, as captured in Isaiah 53, that we are not alone in this and that there is hope. But when you're in grief, answers aren't easy. And so this morning, again, we want to wrestle with this together, look through the scripture, see what God has to say about this so that we might have hope in this time. In his, letters to the, in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said to them, I want you to be able to grieve like people who have hope. I don't, want, I don't want you to grieve like people who don't, because I want you to be able to rejoice in all things in life in Christ Jesus. And that's our goal. That's our hope. When we think about... Um, and sorry, I'm going to go to the next slide. One of the things that God promises to us is that he is with us and he delivers us. And that, that we have a God and a redeemer who not only understands our grief and our sorrows, but born them so that we would be made whole. And, and as we think about that truth, we need, to, we need to wrestle with that and unpack that because truth really matters when you're grieving. Truth shakes you to the core. Truth shakes your beliefs, your relationships, the things that you take for granted. It, it shakes you. And so we really want to understand what is true and not, or not when we're going through a grief, a time of grief. And, and one of the things that I want to do actually before we, we go any further is I want to show you a video, it's, it's a clip from a podcast called Radio Lab, and it, it was something that meant a lot to me at the time that I was going through something tough, and it talks about the nature of the universe and the way things are, and I think it relates to where, what we're going to talk about. So if we could play that. Hey, you see the top of the slinky, the first coil, first turn, collapses onto the turn just below it, and then just below that one and just below that one, and you can watch the thing collapse, hitting towards the bottom. Meanwhile, the bottom of the slinky is just hovering. Even though the top has been let go, the bottom doesn't know anything has happened. Wait, what? The bottom doesn't know that the top is free. Wait, wait the, the bottom doesn't know 
verb, the verb knowing is throwing me so, off. So let's, here's the way that a physicist would talk about it is the bottom doesn't feel anything except that little bit of metal right above it. And as long as the little bit of metal right above hasn't changed in any way, then the very bottom doesn't know that it's supposed to fall. That is exactly right. There's these two ideas there. There's a kind of physics-y idea about what the top is doing relative to the bottom, and then there's this concept of knowledge, which is why I thought this would be fun to talk about, because we don't usually think of things like slinkies as having information and knowledge. Mm. They're right. This is the nature of reality. The slinky shows you how it really is. So you're saying the slinky reveals something about the nature of everything? There you go. That's why I think it's so cool. <laughs> Huh. What it's revealing is what physicists call locality. All you can feel in this world and in this life is what's right on you, what's right on your fingertips, what's right on your senses. And you don't know, I don't want to say what I want to say. <laughs> you don't know anything until the right wave hits you. The example I like to think of is the sun. The sun is there. We feel its gravity, its warmth, its light. If some cosmic force plucked the sun from the center of the solar system instantaneously, we would have no clue. We would continue to orbit this empty spot in space. We would continue to feel sunlight and warmth. Would we see a glow? You would see the sun for eight minutes. Even though it's not there. Because, but You the... don't know it's not there. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the edge of the wave hasn't reached you yet. The earth doesn't, nobody knows it. For eight minutes and 20 seconds. I can't tell you what that meant to me when I heard it a few years ago. But, but that concept of, of locality, of only knowing where you are, it made sense to me. Because when you're in grief, you're in it. That is what you know. Everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, it is hard. And and the Bible talks about, I think the Bible has this concept of locality in it. And we'll talk about that too. But as we explore more what grief is, I, I want you to understand grief or sorrow is not just sadness. And I have a, another picture I want to show you. See this girl? I, that's sadness right there. When she hits the wall, that's grief. Sadness and anger, that's fine. Grief. Grief is when you hit the wall. Grief is when you bang up against something. Grief is, it, it, it takes all those structures, all those constructs that you have in life, and it, it just, it smashes them. You have to make new space for things. It ripples through every area of life. It shakes the foundation. Like I said, faith, relationships, what you believe about things, it, grief will test you. It will test all of your ideas, all of your hopes. And that's, it just, it keeps going. And it, it, grief can be so many things. Grief can just be your plans. Grief can be the things that you hoped for and the things that you were, you're trying to do. And maybe they're good things, but you're running along and bang, you hit the wall and it just knocks you down. He's fine. And we have all these good things that we want to do and that we're trying to do, and it hits us hard, and it knocks us down. And, and sometimes grief is a person or a relationship. It's when someone dies. It's a divorce. It's, it's a relationship with a child or a parent or a guardian, and you can go to the next, and 
um, you know, it's just a person that you, you just you slam into. And you hit it, but it, it knocks you down every time. It just hits you down. Sometimes grief is from just our own bad decisions and the, and the mistakes that we've made, and we grieve them. We wish we could take them back. We wish it was different. We would do anything to go back in time and make it different, but we can't. But we hit a wall. But whatever gets you there in grief, whatever the cause, it all looks the same. It looks like the world has just hit you and laid you out. That's what it feels like. It's when you feel like the world just crushes you and it knocks you out, lays you down. And like I said, everything is, everything is shaken. You're down. And you don't know if you want to get back up. That's what's hard. It's very isolating. The isolation is when, when everything is shaken, when you're doubting everything, that's not fun to share with people. You don't want to share your doubts, share how down you are. You don't want to make somebody else's day worse. And if you've been through this and you know that somebody has the misfortune of asking you how you're doing when you're feeling like very honest that day, it's terrible. How are you doing? Well, I don't know if I believe in a God anymore. I'm angry. My life feels ruined. Since most of the decisions I made were based on the, the idea that there was a God, I'm resenting and questioning every decision I've ever made. And I'm mad at all the people who made me believe that there was a God, so I'm angry at everybody. And the only reason I'm not mad and screaming at everyone is that I feel dead inside, so I'm not freaking out. And the person is like, oh, well, yesterday I went to the bagel shop and I really wanted everything bagel with butter, and they ran out of butter, and I was bummed out. So we're going through the same thing. You just gotta trust in Jesus and keep going. And you're like, wow, I thought I felt alone before. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> and it's well-meaning, it's well-intentioned, but when you're in grief, I mean, when you're in it, when you've lost something that you were counting on, believed in, hoped in, and that thing is now gone, whether it's a person or a plan, it shakes you. Sometimes what's hard is it's a structure in your life that you didn't even realize you were putting that much faith and hope in, and it's gone. And you have to deal with that, and you have to rebuild from there. And the other thing that's hard is while you're there, knocked out on the ground, life has this terrible way of just keeping going. It just drags you. Like the, It's so offensive. The bills don't stop. The job doesn't stop. The family doesn't need you any less. People still need to eat. All of it keeps going. And so you have this, this way of getting dragged in just by habit, just because that's what you do and that's what people expect of you. You kind of keep going. But you're knocked out. And so you have 
people who are walking around having been knocked out grieving and they're going through the motions having never decided if they were going to get up and that's not life see life requires a, a lot of things but life requires freedom from anxiety and fear and hope for a future and we when you don't have those and you're going through life that's not life that's hell and this is why Jesus came to give life a lot of people were confused about why Jesus came and you can see in the New Testament when people were were going to him talking to him they were trying to figure out why in John chapter 3 Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says I I see that you're different we hear that you're different why what are you here to do and Jesus says I'm here to give life life everlasting in Matthew 5 um, and thank you guys so much for doing my slides I'm having technical issues and I have people in the back doing slides for me and thank you for that in Matthew 5 Jesus hints at what many people were coming to him about and saying, are, they're coming to him and saying, you know, are you here to abolish the law and the prophets, Jesus? Are you here to do a new thing? And he says, no. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. I like, um, some versions will talk about like, not one jot or tittle will pass away. And that's, if you look at the Hebrew characters, they're just like very small dots and little strokes. He's saying, not until every T is crossed and every I is dotted. That's what I'm here to fulfill. That's why I'm here. And that's confusing because when you and I hear the law, we think about some moral code that we've tried to live by every day and failed. And if you don't know that you're failing, you're failing, and that's okay. You might be grieving about that. We can talk later. <laughs> but see, he's saying, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. And so it makes us think, well, what did the law and the prophets say? What are the law and prophets spelling out for us that we have to understand that Jesus is here to fulfill it? See, the law defined the chasm that is between God and man, the things that keep us away. And if you ever read the law, these, these early books in the Bible, they read kind of dark. It's not an uplifting read. Do this, you die. Do this, you die. Don't do this, you die. Do this too much, you die. Don't do it enough, you die. But it's, it's defining the borders of this chasm. I think of the, the Grand Canyon. I think of there's the cliff and they're stepping over the cliff. And God in his mercy is spelling out for his people, this is the law, this is the way, this is the instruction for life. And he's spelling it out even though he's saying, I know you're gonna fall. It's impossible not to fall. But and that's the law, but there's the prophets too, and there's what the prophets are saying. And we can look and say, here, here's one of the prophets in Isaiah saying, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain 
the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. These are the prophets. God is saying, I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then there's this other verse in Hosea, where God says, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And that one, on the surface, it doesn't read as clearly, does it? There's a lot of references there that are a little bit confusing. But this is a verse that in some of my darkest days I came across, and this gave me so much hope because it talks about how God deals with our grief. And that's what I want to walk us through this morning. To understand this, we have to understand the narrative of the scripture in the Bible a little bit more. And so when we look through at a very high level, we have the story of the Bible that starts with this story of creation in the fall. God makes a space for people. He, he makes out a garden. This picture of not just making a space, when you think of making a garden for someone, a place where you can commune with them, be with them, spend time with them, you're thinking about them, what they'll enjoy, what what will give them life? What's life-giving? What's restful? What's peace? And that's the story. And the story of the fall is the story of heartache, of heartbreak, and broken relationship. The Bible starts with the story of grief and real loss. And as, as the story continues, God calls Abraham to, to now after the fall of the garden and after the flood, God calls Abraham and says, I, I still have this desire to commune with my people. I want to make a space. Come, Abraham. And, and, and he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob. And Jacob has these 12 sons, one of which is named Joseph. And I don't know if you know the story, but Joseph's brothers are very jealous of him because their father loves him the most and spoils him and probably did some dumb things to make his brothers jealous. So his brothers fake his death and sell him into slavery. And he winds up in Egypt. In Egypt, while he's there, Joseph has these dreams and is able to, or, or is able to help foretell of, of this great famine that's going to come over the world. And so they start storing all this food. They have seven years of plenty and seven years of nothing. And so they store everything. And they're completely prepared for this devastating famine that's gonna come. And that's important because when the Pharaoh, who now owns this, the only store of food in the world, people are coming to him and saying, take our money, we need food. And then they run out of money. So they say, take our stuff, we run out of food. And then they say, take our lands, we ran out of food. And then there's nothing left. And they say, take us, we ran out of food. So while the rest of the world is destroyed during this time, Egypt thrives, and the Pharaoh is by far the most powerful man on earth. This is the most powerful country. There's not even a close second. And when, when God calls Moses to call his people out of, of Egypt, 
the, the people of Israel who have grown to a, a very large people now have been enslaved because Pharaoh owned everybody. And so he chose to use Israelites as slaves. And so for God to send Moses to go bring his people out is God sending Moses to the only power, the most powerful country in the world, this kingdom. But he does. And, and he calls his people out and there's 10 plagues and the Pharaoh finally releases his people, the, the, the Israelites, and Moses and the Israelites go. And what happens is they're leaving. Pharaoh changes his mind one last time and, and sends his entire army after Israel. And what does God do? He makes a way. He makes a way through the sea. And we see Israel go into that, walk on dry land with walls of water on each side, and they go down as slaves and in fear and for their lives, wondering what's going to happen. And they come up the other side. And as the Egyptian army comes through, the water collapses and crushes everybody who is pursuing them, removes everything that could have caused them harm, the entire army, we're told. And that's so important because we have in this story the first picture of baptism, of going down into the water, the, the symbolism of coming down, going with the anxiety and the fear, and coming up with hope, free of sin, and anxiety. And so that's that picture there. And we know what happens. Moses brings the people to the promised land, but they take one look. They send spies in. The spies come back and they're like, the land is beautiful. It's better than we heard. It's better than we thought. We can't do it. The people are too big. People are too strong. Their armies are too vast. We'll never make it. And so God says, then this people won't go into the promised land. Well, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the 40, 40 years is where God gave them this law and they built the tabernacle and, and, and built the ways in which, the laws of which they were going to commune with God. And God said, do these things and you will be my people. Do these things and I will always be with you. But if you don't, I'll leave you to your own devices. Well, 40 years goes by. That generation who didn't want to go in the first time dies off. Moses has died at this point, and now Joshua is raised up as a leader for Israel. And Joshua brings the people into the promised land, and the first place they go to is Jericho. Now, Jericho was the oldest city in the world. As long as they were alive, there was a Jericho. Not only was it the oldest city, scholars think it's probably just one of the, like, the oldest citadel. The walls were enormous, especially for that time, probably as much as 13 feet thick in some spots and very high. It was enormous. So here's, here's this group of people that God is leading, and the first place they go to is the largest, most powerful citadel in the world. And if you know the story, you know that God delivered Jericho to the Israelites without them having to fight. They marched around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they, they marched seven times, blew their trumpets, yelled, and the walls went crashing down. And God said, this one's mine. This one's for me. 
I want you to dedicate the things from the city to me. And they said, okay. Well, then came the next city, which was Ai. Ai was this very small city. In fact, after, the Jericho, after Jericho, spies went to Ai to check it out, and they came back to Joshua and said, super small, we don't even need everybody. We're just gonna go, we'll go wrap it up. We'll be back by noon. Have sandwiches waiting. So Israel goes and they lose. They get beaten back. And the verse in Joshua says that the hearts of the people melted and turned to water. Think about it from their perspective. You've come into this, you've been in the wilderness for 40 years, you've come into this land, you're not really an army even though you acted tough just because God won a battle for you and thought you were gonna suddenly beat everybody. So now you've gone up against this very small city and lost. And you know that not only are the people of this little city AI emboldened, but everybody in the area is gonna hear it, everybody. So then what? Then what's gonna happen? You've brought your entire family to this place. What do you do? Do you run back to the wilderness? Do you, do you stay here and die fighting? You can't even beat the small cities. And it says, again, the hearts of the people melted and turned to water. This picture is grief. They hit a wall. That's what's so important. I, I need you to hear that about the story. This, this is how you say they hit a wall in Hebrew. There's only one other place where the Bible uses this language. And it's in Psalm 22, which is this prophetic psalm about how Jesus was going to die on the cross. And it said that his heart was going to melt like wax and that he would be poured out like water. Water is, is always the symbol of chaos. It is this, you're grief stricken. Your thoughts are everywhere. You, you, it's grief. It's terrible. So it's this very, very powerful picture of the grief and the darkness they were feeling. And so God says to Joshua, get up off your face. Let's go. Get up. There's somebody among you, Achan, who took something from Jericho that he wasn't supposed to. That was supposed to be dedicated to me. And so Joshua dealt with it. They took it back. Achan was killed. And this is because Israel couldn't move forward having done what they did. And this is a principle for us. Sometimes you can't move forward into what God has for you when you try holding on to things that don't belong to you. There are some things that belong to him and that he says, that's mine. You can't carry that. You've got to give it to me. You've got to. You're not going to go forward with it. And so that's what happens they rectify this. Israel goes through, takes, it, takes AI, and that battle is won. But there's something very interesting about the book of Joshua. That battle of AI was the only battle they ever lost. But at the end of the book, and this is 30 or 40 years later, there's a certain somber tone about the book of Joshua. 
And Joshua is telling the people, go and take the land. We've been here all this time. You still haven't taken what God has promised. And what I believe happened is I believe there was a grief that happened. They hit a wall. They hit a wall and they never got up. They never went through and took it. They would always go and conquer lands and then retreat back to their safe spots. They'd go and conquer and then retreat back to their safe spots. And they didn't go and live in the fullness of the promise that God had for them. And that's, that's a warning for us because some of us can be doing that. Some of us can be walking around with that. And so, and if we can go back to the previous slide or the timeline, sorry. And so what happens is Joshua encourages people to take the land. They never really do. They take spots, but they're always pockets of, of strongholds and resistance. Israel develops kings. They, they don't like the system of having these prophets run, rule over them anymore. And then Israel splits. Ten of the tribes go to the north. Two of the tribes go to the south. So there's Israel and there's Judah. And then there's where Hosea is writing. And Hosea is, is, is writing right at probably the darkest time of this northern kingdom. He's writing at a time where the people are doing what's right in their own sight. Everything's a mess. And the kingdom of Assyria is about to come in and conquer them. And Assyria was not, this was no joke. They were brutal. They were brutal. And so this is the time in this darkness for this people that Hosea writes those words, if we can go back. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's painting this picture of, I know it's dark. I know that it doesn't look good. And, and, and God is saying, I'm telling you there's going to be a day. I'm going to allure her. It gives you that picture that word allure, too, is really complicated. It, it, it is a calling, but it's also calling into a space. It starts, to, uh, it starts to harken back to the garden where God is calling Adam and Eve, and they would spend time together. I'm going to call her into a space. I'll allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. What? Wait, we came out of the wilderness. All right, I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there, I will give her vineyards. That's not what you do in a wilderness, is it? What God is doing here, and what we need to know and understand, and I, I, just, I pray you understand this, is this is who God is and how he reveals himself to us. That in our grief, God doesn't come in just this moment of grief. God says, I'm going to go back and I'm going, to, I'm going to redeem it all. All the things, everything that was a source of pain, even the prayers you forgot and the tears you shed that you forgot, I'm going to redeem it all because I haven't forgotten. And I'm going to take those places that were dark and I'm going to make them good. 
And I'm going to take you back into that wilderness, that wilderness that is the misery that defined this darkest time of your life. And I'm going to speak tenderly to you there. And I'm going to make vineyards. Again, he's planting, he's planting something, a garden for life, for hope. And he says, there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. See, Ai, after they lost that battle, they called it the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Trouble. And trouble is an understatement. The the Valley of Hopelessness. And he says, I'm going to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. See, he's redeeming all things. He's going back. This is hundreds of years later, and they're in trouble now. And he's saying, don't you see? I've got a plan. I'm going to save you. I'm going to go back to the, to the, I'm going to go back to the garden. I'm going to go back to the wilderness. I'm going to go back to the valley of Achor. And I'm going to make it a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, because he knew that his Israel had crossed, was on dry ground, and had nothing but hope, because everything that had pursued her had been destroyed. Freedom from fear, fear of death, and a hope for a future. That's what his Israel looked like. That's what his children looked like when they came out of that land and watched the Egyptian army get crushed. He goes all the way back and he says, don't you see, I'm going to do it. It's going to be like that, but better. Because I'm going to make all these things right. And that's what Jesus does. That's what he promises. That's when Jesus came to fulfill The law and the prophets, that's what he's coming to fulfill. Jesus gives himself so that we would have hope. He, uh, He wants life. He wants life for us. Not despair, not grief. And when you're there wondering if you're alone, if you're there wondering if he cares, then think back to the garden. Because you know how in the garden I talked about that was the story of grief? That was a story of heartache and heartbreak from the beginning of the Bible? That's not your heartbreak. That's his. That's his heartbreak because he lost us. He loves us so much. He loves you so much that he came so that the chasm that was between you and him would be filled because the spirit that he's given you, he longs to be with. He longs to commune with you. And when you read this and understand, this is about God's grief for us, his mourning for us. You understand that we have a God who understands our grief. And the same way that you would for a child that was mourning has done everything, everything he had to do to wipe away every tear and make right what was wrong because that's who this God is. And so when you feel alone or wonder if you're alone, the answer is no. Because it's not just your grief that you're experiencing. He's in it with you. And he's saying, I'm here now and I was there with you then and I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to make it all good. I'm going to swallow up death. I'm going to wipe every tear The other thing that's confusing about the Bible is sometimes it talks about this as if it's 
Sometimes it talks about it like it's going to happen, and then sometimes it talks about it like it's done. And so, for instance, if we look at this verse in Revelation, he says, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. See, I am making all things new, he said. He's not getting rid of them. He's making them new. He also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I, it is done, which echoes back to Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. It is done. I have conquered it. It is done. Let those words echo in your ears. It is done. Now, what's hard about that is I still feel pain. I still feel loss. There are people I know who are struggling mightily with things. And so to the question, does the pain, will the pain ever end? The answer is yes. And the answer is it has. And the answer is it will. And it's like locality. Because we only know what's on us. We can only feel what's right on us. And God is saying, I'm telling you, I've already done what needed to be done. It is finished. And that wave is going to hit you. It's it is done, I promise. This isn't someone telling you I'm going to do something for you in the future and then never following up. It's saying, it is done, it is finished. Wait on me. Trust in me. Hope in me. These words are faithful and true. Write it down. Write it in your heart. Let it be the hope. It's our only hope. Am I alone? No. God has, has grieved us since that break in the garden. And he wants to be with us, and he sent his son so that we could be with him. And he is with you. Whether you believe in him or not, God is with you. Will this pain ever end? Yes. I don't know what that looks like for everybody. It seems harder for some, and it doesn't always seem fair. But he promises it will end. And then, does God care about our pain? About the little things that grieve us? Yeah. He cares about every stroke. He cares about every jot and tittle. All the T's crossed. All the I's dotted. He cares about all of it. And he came to fulfill it. Amen. Pray. God, the names you give us of yourself are Emmanuel, God with us. And your name, Jesus, means God saves and redeems. So we pray now to Emmanuel, Jesus, be with us in our grief. Help us. God, where we are grieving, where we are just going through the motions, we pray for healing and deliverance. For those of us who are very aware of our pain and our grief and our solitude, Lord, we pray that your light would break through 
so that people might feel hope even in this moment. Hope for today so that they can get through it and have again your hope and your mercy for tomorrow. God, for those of us who are watching loved ones grieve, give us strength, give us your wisdom, give us your overwhelming love to be with them. Give us wisdom for when to speak, when to be quiet, when to just hug them, when to leave them alone. But God, what we won't do is leave you alone about them. We're going to pray every day for them. We're going to knock on your door repeatedly, God, and say, please, please bring hope and healing, freedom from fear, hope for a future. And God, as we go through and try to reconstruct those things that have been broken on us, those constructs that we've put faith in, sometimes more than you and more than we should have, we ask for your patience, your healing. We ask for your truth to sink in. God, we come to you because we can, because you made it so. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.